1964 New York World's Fair, celebrating man's achievement on a shrinking globe in an expanding universe. I'm Paul Zoll, and these podcasts will be regular updates from the worlds of literature, popular culture, and the old religion, that's Bob Dylan's phrase, in relation to some of life's everyday problems, such as anger, loss, and bewilderment. Most of my podcasts will begin with a text, sometimes from a novel, I Love Possessed, sometimes from a movie, The Bride of Frankenstein, sometimes from a song, Telstar, for example, sometimes from the Bible, Perfect Love Casts Out Fear, sometimes from a TV show, Tonight's story will be a thriller. Each week, I hope to offer you something different, something entertaining, something even, well, blood-transfusing. think that you can learn more about Christianity by studying five particular moments in the history of the Christian movement or church than any others. Everybody has their choices, of course, but after many years of thinking about this and working it through and teaching it and sort of living it in church struggles and church life, I've, uh, I've sort of focused on five moments or uh, uh, eventualities coupled with movements that I think sum it all up. The first would be the actual life of Jesus of Nazareth himself, the so-called historical Jesus. Who was he? What did he do? Uh, and uh, what was he like? The second is the birth of earliest Christianity, the remarkable growth uh, and thriving uh, of this movement in the uh, second and third centuries of our era, uh, the relationship of uh, Christianity, in other words, with the Roman Empire and all the different currents of thought that were in the Roman Empire. Think the robe with Richard Burton. Uh, think Quo Vadis. Uh, Think Ben-Hur and the chariot race. Think of those things and you have that kind of interest in the birth of a movement that had uh, a, a massive effect on even the life that we lead today. Then I always uh, place the Protestant Reformation of the early 16th century when there was a, a, a historic attempt to recover the core, the core that had been associated with this very impressive individual and then uh, his immediate effect in the Roman Empire, the core message, what was it and how could it be brought into the present day? There's another movement in contemporary times that I've been interested in and have sort of been a part of, and I'll talk about that another day. But the fourth of the five moments of interest, at least to me, in the history of Christianity is the Jansenist movement in France and Belgium, but uh, especially in France in the uh, middle years of the 17th century that actually went right through the middle of the 18th century from about... Uh, 
uh, from the from the sixteen uh, uh, sixteen roughly sixteen eleven or so through um, gosh through seventeen fifty four and then uh, actually it it hits with the French Revolution. There's a Jansenist theme in the French Revolution. The history of a movement called Jansenism is of tremendous interest. Uh, and what um, I'm going to do uh, in a short 30-minute podcast today is talk about this fascinating, complex movement, but I'm going to do it differently. Normally, I've taken four or five classes to talk about Jansenism. It's really worth a semester study, even at an undergraduate level, and a lifetime study uh, in any normal human being, because there is so much to it. So many outstanding individuals were involved in it, and you all see y'all hear, so many historic movements of other kinds came into connection with it, and there's so much really to learn about it uh, that is really instructive, and it had a huge impact on French history. Uh, uh, Henri de Monterland, who was a uh, a, a very um, eccentric uh, sort of genius uh, French uh, playwright uh, in the modern era wrote uh, uh, that uh, in the, in the uh, uh, 1950s that every Frenchman had ultimately to decide whether he was for or against Jansenism. Now you may say, well, what in the heck is that? I'm going to tell you what it is, but I'm not going to really uh, go into detail because that is uh, something that you can do on your own. You can look it up. I'll give you the very barest outlines and then make some general statements about Jansenism. And if uh, if I don't have enough time today in this uh, podcast, I'll do another one because there's so much to be said about it. But uh, let us say this, that <clears throat> in the period of the Counter-Reformation, that is the Catholic reaction to the Protestant Reformation in which a very strong uh, anti-Protestant or anti-Lutheran theology was embraced in the Church of Rome and embraced in Europe and became kind of a march against the Protestant heretics who seemed to undercut the importance of human cooperation and human good works in a relationship with God and, in fact, any kind of life. In the period of the Counter-Reformation, there was such a reaction to Protestantism that there would inevitably be a reaction to the Counter-Reformation. And it took a very unusual form uh, with some highly intellectual French people who um, were, and one uh, Bel a Belgian, who um, uh, actually, uh, because they were very articulate clergy of the Roman Catholic Church and hotly anti-Protestant, as they would have to be and were by conviction and sincerity, the teachings that... Uh, had come into Europe through the Reformation from St. Paul um, and had then been rejected by the Church of Rome in some very basic ways. These teachings came through the back door into French Catholicism through a study of the theologian St. Augustine, the ancient Roman theologian St. Augustine, who had died around 410 uh, during the period we now know as the fall of the Roman Empire. And there is a magnificent production by Roberto Rossellini. The, you know what, I'm going to have to do two, uh, I'm going to have to do two podcasts on this. So this is going to be part one of two on the Jansenists, because I do have to give you a kind of general perspective about this fascinating movement with all its cultural, some of its cultural roots and ladders and shoots and growths and background. And then in the second podcast, I'm going to give a few big pictures, sort of remember the God's eye view, the Alfred Hitchcock God's eye view and the birds. I'll try to give sort of what I've learned over the centuries 
studies. I've been studying Jansenism since I was about 19 years old and uh, have been to France to study it there and see it directly and have um, studied the original the documents uh, in French, uh, which they're mostly in French, some in Latin, and uh, have been living with this material for years and years and years. And so I'll start then. Uh, this will be podcast, uh, the first podcast on the Jansenists. Now, um, what uh, what happened was that a uh, a uh, um, uh, uh, Cornelius Jansen, a uh, French uh, bishop up in the area of Utrecht, had discovered the writings of St. Augustine. And the writings of St. Augustine, especially the later writings of St. Augustine, make uh, a huge to-do because of problems in his own context back in the late uh, 4th century and early 5th century. Uh, they make a huge to-do about grace as something that we cannot resist. And grace, God's work when it is to be done, is not, cannot be ultimately resisted by people. Now, the reason that was seen as good news is because people who are so iffy and nuanced and are all around the place always in their thinking and, you know, I love and I hate. Remember what Catullus said, Odi et amo, I hate her and I love her. I hate you and I love you. There's a thin line between love and hate, a song by the pretenders and others that I never tire of quoting. Um, there is a, a constant alternation in human affairs between hate and love. We are always changing because we ourselves are in constant reaction to our <clears throat> inner pressures and our outer pressures. And there's no question that human, um, the human identity is very, very frangible, fragile, fr fr fragile and uh, uh, ethereal and uh, quixotic. And so the teaching that St. Augustine underlined, that God's work is God's work, not humanity's work, and that his work in life will never ultimately be resisted because it is his work, and therefore we have to count on his work even in our lives when we see our lives in tatters. You remember James Taylor? You know, just I woke up that song, uh, "Fire and Rain." I've I've seen uh, I've seen the my my plane is in pieces on the ground. Uh, in the light of the way life goes and catastrophe goes and disappointments go, we need something solid. And Augustine, very perceptively and with tremendous massive mental equipment, laid this out, a kind of doctrine based mostly on uh, the letter to the Romans of St. Paul and other texts in Paul and some in the Old Testament. Augustine developed a view of the majesty of God's grace and God's work as opposed to the um, ambiguity and ambivalence of human relatings. And uh, he majored on God's work as opposed to ours. And it was a very powerful affirmation. And then it was for Forgotten because in many ways it seemed to take away human agency and people hate to believe that they can't do something about everything. People really resist the notion that they themselves can't do anything. And so um, in a number of important ways uh, which later were laded with the false and prejudicial term predestination, which is a term we all love to hate, right? I mean, predestination, are you kidding? All you need to do is... Uh, is say that in a in a in a social setting, and you'll have the whole room to yourself very quickly. These are ideas which have been tarred with tremendous associations, negative ones, and certainly in our country that's the case. So um, these ideas went into eclipse for a century. As a matter of fact, more than a century. It was said very interestingly by one of the uh, Jansenists. 
of actually the most uh, famous one, Monsieur de Saint-Cyran. Monsieur de Saint-Cyran, who was the real French uh, progenitor and founder of the Jansenist movement after Bishop Jansen had died. Uh, Jansen uh, uh, studied with Saint-Cyran, or vice versa, and Cyran was actually quoted to say the astonishing words, for the last 600 years there has been no church. What he was referring that uh, since the teachings of Augustine had gone underground and had been kind of squelched or at least quietly put into a drawer like some of Shakespeare's plays were during his life, uh, the, uh, there had been no church. In other words, where there is no teaching about grace, and in specifically Saint-Cyran thought, where there has no, been no legacy of St. Augustine, there is no church. Well, the Protestant reformers said something very similar to that. They would often say that, that uh, from, from the early church and through the growth of the Catholic church in the 5th century uh, or earlier through to the year 1517, basically the church was not there. There was really no church. It was a false church or an institution that bore little resemblance to the heart of the matter. And so Protestants said it even more strongly, but the fact that Saint-Cyran could have been said said that for 600 years there was no church. That for a Roman Catholic uh, priest to have said that and written that, that was uh, uh, extremely shocking to his uh, contemporaries. In any way, uh, Jansen, this bishop, uh, in the early 17th century, rediscovered some of the later works of St. Augustine and read them carefully and then put them in a kind of big bound book called the Augustinus, a large major book which was mostly the later... Uh, teachings and writings of St. Augustine, which are voluminous because these had been kept through monasteries, through the Dark Ages and the Middle Ages, and they were available, but they hadn't been read. And a light went off in this fellow, Cornelius Jansen, and he saw this uh, powerful uh, thing in front of him, this great teaching, which he saw at great odds with the uh, massive rejection of grace, at least in certain respects, as he perceived it from the Counter-Reformation Catholic Church against the Protestants. But Jansen was a Roman Catholic, and he was very anti-Protestant, because you had to be in the Low Countries, Les Pays-Bas, the Netherlands, because you had the Calvinists just around the corner, over the river. And so Catholic Catholicism had to take on a high profile. So what was Jansen to do? Well, he happened to meet a very aristocratic and extremely marvelous man named Saint-Cyran, who came up and studied with him for actually about five years and uh, uh, up in Belgium. And <clears throat> they uh, were a very um, struck by this uh, teaching. And Saint-Cyran brought it back to his family. And one of the things we're going to see in the Jansenist movement is that it's a family business. Three or four families, Saint-Cyran, Arnaud, uh, Pascal, uh, and a number of others, all of whom had large extended families. And this teaching was initially uh, passed along through, uh, through uh, first through nuclear families, then through um, extended natural families. It wasn't passed on as a movement in the broader world. It was passed on quietly through members of families, <clears throat> particularly these highly uh, educated aristocratic families uh, where it began to take root. That's something I'll talk about later. So this teaching came and one of its first fruits was to um, establish a uh, monastic movement uh, that was primarily female. Uh, the It was female cousins and nieces and daughters, uh, sorry, uh, um, ex mothers and aunts and sisters and her cousins and his aunts uh, of Saint and another family named Arno, who was all connected, and they they had such an effect these teachings about grace on some very refined and thoughtful women 
<clears throat> as well as uh, men. Uh, but the women were ultimately sort of the last to, to, today we call it die on the hill. They were the ones who took the hit, although everyone took the hit in this uh, particular thing. It's gender blind, needless to say. These great movements are usually gender blind because they're, they're about the human being and the human loss and the human look for a safe and secure identity or place to stand in, in the hurly-burly of life. Well, um, the um, women uh, founded uh, a, a monastic movement that was located at Port-Royal-Des Champs, uh, that is Port-Royal uh, of the fields. There were two um, convents. One was in Paris, uh, and this uh, convent uh, was where uh, the movement initially began. And one was uh, outside of uh, Paris, not very far from um, Versailles, and uh, I've actually uh, been there. It's a now a, a national site in uh, the French Museum system, and I'll talk about that uh, uh, on the next uh, podcast. But two monasteries were established, and then um, in 1638, Jansen died, and uh, Saint-Simon uh, was arrested. Because the French, under the uh, coming of uh, uh, the uh, the coming of the reign of Louis the Fourteenth, uh, coming uh, under Cardinal Richelieu, the uh, great uh, sort of autocratic uh, cardinal administrator of France, who died, uh, and after his uh, death in uh, 1642, uh, Louis the Fourteenth became the king, as opposed to the kind of um, getting ready to be king, the prequel. Um, when Richelieu was so uh, focused on the religious wars with the Protestants, he had huge problems ever since the St. Bartholomew's Massacre of 1585 when uh, the French Protestant aristocracy was wiped out. There were uh, terrible wars before and after, and uh, uh, Richelieu was absolutely focused with Louis XIV's total support of stamping out uh, Huguenots or Protestants, uh, French Protestants, <coughs> l'Église prétendue réformée, the supposedly reformed church, and uh, he had his hands full. Now here comes a kind of fifth column of moles in the Roman Catholic Church, all wearing scapula and all with rosaries and all devout, uh, highly educated women who'd gone into the religious life. And highly educated men, we're going to see them, Saint-Cyron or no, but then we're going to find out that Jean Racine, the court playwright, the house artist of the Sun King, becomes a Jansenist, is a Jansenist. And we're going to see it in the famous uh, Blaise Pascal, the great genius who uh, invented the abacus slash computer and the parish bus system and uh, tremendous uh, important uh, physics, uh, disquisitions on physics. We're going to see, uh, by the way, remember this, that the only movie that's ever been made about the Jansenists was made in the 60s by the same director who made the only movie that I'm aware of that goes into the life of St. Augustine, the famous Augustine who started this whole business, although St. Paul, and we would like to say, I think, that Jesus of Nazareth began this. But let's, uh, let's not even say that. Let's just uh, say that Rossellini does a nine-hour television uh, movie for Italian television on the life of St. Augustine, and it's fabulous. It's done in his most stripped-back, bare, later style, television style, but it is a kind of a, a, kind of a, a docudrama 
that is with his whole heart in which the genius Rossellini covers the life of Augustine and I really recommend it. You have to look on YouTube for it sadly. It is available on YouTube and it's in the Italian language but otherwise it's there. And then uh, he did uh, his uh, life about three hours worth of Blaise Pascal which is also fabulous in his most stripped down uh, um, uh, technique and actually has the famous uh, burning night, the famous uh, conversion experience of Pascal on film, together with Pascal's death, which has got to be one of the great moments in the uh, work of Roberto Rossellini. But that's on the Eclipse or Eclipse uh, uh, label underneath the Criterion collection. So you can go home and get that off of Netflix right now. Now, these monasteries, the one out, these convents, became kind of the center. And what would happen is the women were in town, and then outside in Port-Royal des Champs, which was the, where the, the, a, the, uh, the, the, the main Port Royal Monastery near, um, I think the village is called Magny Les Amos. Magny, M-A-G-N-Y, Les, L-E-S, Magno, uh, uh, M-A-G-N-E-A-U-X, I think. Uh, no, H-A-M-E-A-U-X, Magny Les Amos. This uh, village, uh, this, they first, this was a kind of retreat for the men, uh, les messieurs, uh, men sort of, you might call them lay brothers, but they were almost all these very intellectual theologians and writers and novelists and mathematicians and playwrights and others who would gather out there and discuss these great ideas and write about them and think about them. And I'll mention a few of their names, uh, their other names of them, um, uh, Pasquet Quenel uh, being one of the most important of them, uh, and uh, Monsieur Nicole, and they would gather out there and have these wonderful discussions, salon, about uh, these teachings of grace versus law, or grace versus effort, and free will versus freedom and sovereignty and autonomy, and it was a kind of a philosophical center for the intellectual life of France. I've always wondered by why Les, Les Editions Gallimard, these beautiful um, hundred series, 200 series of beautifully illustrated paperback French books on great moments in history, Sigmund Freud, Cleopatra, uh, Pompey, uh, uh, 17th century French literature, etc. Why they haven't done one officially devoted to the Jansenists? I'll bet you they will because it's a, it's a subject still controversial in its way in France because what happened to the Jansenists it was so contrary to the spirit of the, of the Paris, the city of light during the French Revolution that they were uh, like the way they treated the Huguenots, the way that the Jansenists were treated by mainstream uh, French culture and life is an embarrassment to uh, French people of a liberal disposition, and I understand that. Now, uh, two, uh, you have the men, les messieurs, out in, the, in Manier les Amos, and you have the women in town, in the Port Royal des Champs in town, and these two are kind of uh, uh, constantly in contact through the carriages of the nobility, because most of the women who were in the monasteries were the daughters of the noble families, most of them, if not all, but not all, most, and and similarly, Monsieur were highly educated men of the lower aristocracy and some of the upper aristocracy, but mostly of the lower. And they're connected through co communications, these two houses, and they find us found a school, a school for young people, which became famous. And that's where Jean Racine first uh, ran into uh, to the uh, Jansenists. And by the way, the, uh, the one out in the country is near the cathedral, a town of Beauvais, which is, you know, has that incredible cathedral that collapsed and all that remains is the, is the, uh, 
is the choir and the chancel. Uh, what a dramatic thing. So you can go to the, the musée, uh, the Museum of Les Granges de Port-Royal, that is the only buildings that are left because they were all destroyed under the French king. The only buildings that are left are kind of what were called the barns where the children had their school. And that's where this incredible museum of the Jansenists is. And then you go and you see the ruins of the, which are basically nothing. So complete was the destruction. Les bâtiments, the walls were torn down. This so complete was the destruction that there's nothing left of the original very beautiful convent buildings there. Although years after a pond was created, a memorial pond of a cross. It's a beautiful garden pond, quite large in the shape of a cross, kind of a uh, forever monument to the uh, long gone Jansenists who were finally and completely um, uh, destroyed uh, in 1711. Now, I'm getting somewhere. Don't worry. We're going to end in 30 minutes here. Um, the Jansenists were uh, tremendously suspect uh, by Louis XIV because of the apparent similarity of their teachings to Calvinism when it came to grace. Uh, by the way, the way to really study this is to get uh, Pascal's famous later treatise on grace. Pascal, Blaise Pascal, wrote a short treatise on grace in which he tries to show that the teachings of the Jansenists are not the teachings of John Calvin, but that they are the teachings of the Bible and of the Church forever and of St. Augustine. Uh, they, in fact, are much closer to the teachings of John Calvin and his followers than they are to the teachings of the Council of Trent. It's plain, but um, you can see Pascal is very much on the defensive, but knows his stuff. And uh, the Treatise on Grace by Pascal is well worth a read. It'll take you about a week. It's that good and that significant. Now, um, the Jesuits had, meanwhile, gotten the ear of King Louis XIV. Now, the Jesuits regarded the Jansenists as a kind of fifth column within the church that had to be destroyed in order for the Church of Rome to have a unified and absolutely one voice as it sought to destroy the Protestant heresy, especially in the Baltic area, in Poland, Latvia, Lithuania, especially Lithuania, and reconquer uh, the uh, ultimately France as well, and uh, all areas where Protestantism had been had to be extirpated of this heresy. And if it could be shown by Protestants that within the bosom of the Roman Church there was a teaching that sounded like a theology of grace, well, then that had to be stopped. And so the Jesuits got the ear of Louis XIV, and this is how they did it. Madame de Maintenon, who was the mistress at that time of Louis XIV, uh, was in fact the daughter of a famous Huguenot or Protestant leader. This is fascinating. This is how it always goes in life. This is the story of, of human experience, of reaction. And the daughter of this very famous uh, and high-profile um, uh, 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 Protestant leader was a babe. I mean, she was absolutely beautiful. And Louis Ford fell in love with her. She was highly articulate and very determined. But of course, she was living down with everything she had in her, her father and the Huguenot background from which she had sadly, from her point of view, and very scandalously come. So she became a hyper uh, Roman Catholic of the Counter-Reformation persuasion and rushed all completely uh, tied in with the Jesuits. She, uh, through uh, the Jesuits whom she was so close to, she got her her confessor to get uh, Louis the Fourteenth to see that the Jansenists under his nose, only a few miles from very.
Versailles that the Jansenists were actually crypto-Calvinists, crypto-Protestant heretics, and he fell for it. And the funny thing is, protest as they did, there's some truth in it. I've read a great deal of what the Jansenists actually wrote, and I've read it in French. And the best, uh, the best source, by the way, uh, for the study of Jansenism is uh, uh, Saint-Beuve's uh, three-volume uh, book entitled Port Royal. It's a great classic of 19th century French literature. And here this very distinguished, very acerbic literary critic who in fact had family background in the Jansenist movement and heresy going way, way back, but he wasn't really going to talk about that. He was interested in it partly because he was interested, as all artists are, in themselves. And he was interested in his historic background in his family of sympathy towards Jansenism. But he studied this with a tremendously good literary style and great understanding and a very encyclopedic mind. He wrote up a massive three-volume history of Jansenism called Port Royal. This has never been translated into English, but any of you who know rudimentary, middle-level, sort of eighth-grade French can read it. It's really, really wonderful, and it's the beginning and the end of Jansenist studies, although there are many doctoral dissertations in English written about it. But Santa Beuve's book, which you can read if you just have sort of uh, eight, if you studied French for three and a half years, you can read Port Royal by um, Sainte Beuve, uh, and it's really in its beautiful Gallimard edition. It's still in print, and it's really wonderful. Well, um, uh, dear uh, Louis the Fourteenth understood what was going on, and he decided uh, to stamp out uh, this uh, heresy. In the meantime, uh, the Pope had gotten involved, and he had condemned Jansen's book, the Augustinus, Pope Urban what the Eighth, and. Uh, uh, a number of the Jansenist writers had written books and there was a lot of turbulence because a lot of aristocratic people saw very quickly that the sober rather puritanistic but very, very liberating teachings about grace versus human instability, internal instability, was meeting a need. And all these people were becoming either lay brothers, les messieurs de Port-Royal, or sisters of the convent, uh, the convent of the Blessed Sacrament, Port-Royal. And uh, they had this tremendous uh, dedication, these women did, and the men, to the Holy Communion, to its real meaning. It's sort of like if a whole bunch of Episcopalian and naturally this has happened, or Presbyterians, let me say this, a whole lot of Presbyterians, PCA Presbyterians, got hooked on the 1928 Book of Common Prayer and wanted to have right one slash 1928 Holy Communion at 8 o'clock every Sunday because there's so much power in it. If you've recently been to a kind of church service that is sort of all made up and then you go, by chance you catch a traditional uh, Holy Communion service of the old prayer book by some group or something like that or at a cathedral, uh, you are overwhelmingly convinced that this is, this is, this is it. This is right. Well, the combination of strong teachings about grace with a very frequent and devoted uh, picture of the Eucharist or Holy Communion was a knockout among all these people who were uh, very reflective in any event. And uh, so it was causing a lot of trouble. So at this point, the Sorbonne, which is in fact a reactionary institution, isn't that interesting? The academic institution of Paris was extremely reactionary. It was the exact opposite of open the Sorbonne, coupled with Louis XIV's very strong fears about Jansenism, and the Jesuits being on his case, and the Pope being against them, the noose began to tighten. And now, beginning in 1653, 
the noose tightens completely. Now I'm going to finish today uh, by um, finishing early so that uh, uh, I can get it used to a 30-minute podcast and also so I can really stop here uh, in order to to make a punctuation before the noose tightens and the Jansenists are completely destroyed. And then uh, at the middle section of the next podcast on the Jansenists for today, I will uh, begin to um, uh, try to um, bring out the great lessons of this remarkable uh, historical uh, convulsion in 17th century France. Thank you so very much, and God bless. Thank <laughs> you.